Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, the Major League Baseball's Player Association rejected baseball's latest offer. The vote was 33-5. to 5. The owners then voted unanimously to play a 60-game season. That's right. They're going to ask players by 5 p.m. today to decide if they're able to report to camp in seven days. That would be July 1st. And they also must agree uh, to the operating manual with the player protocols. Could we have baseball? Well, we might. But the players are almost certainly headed to court with a grievance. We're going to talk all about this and... Today we got something a little different. Matt Baker, who covers college football for the Tampa Bay Times, had a good discussion on race and college coaching and things of that sort that stemmed from the flap. Remember a couple of weeks ago with Florida State coach Mike Norvell and defensive tackle Marvin Wilson? Well, the reporter who began that story was Tashawn Reed of The Athletic. You're going to hear Matt Baker's discussion with him on race and coaching and athletics here in just a minute. We've got all that and much more on this edition of Sports Day Tampa Bay. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times along with Producer Steve Versnick. Hey, before we get started uh, on baseball and some other matters, and we'll hear from Matt here in just a second, some sad news um, for those who have been in this area for for a time being. Uh, Phil Kruger, who uh, actually was a uh, former head coach in college, I think at Utah Utah State and Fresno State, and then he was a defensive assistant for John McKay. He was with the first staff of the Buccaneers back in 1976 was a offensive backs coach when he began and uh, was an assistant for three years and then moved to the front office of the Bucks, and then eventually for one year in 1991 became general manager. He passed away on Monday. I got a note from his son-in-law uh, who said that he uh, died peacefully at his home um, down in South Florida and uh, wanted to relay that uh, to me. Phil, Phil was a character of the game. I didn't get to be. I wasn't around him very much. Obviously, he he was uh, pretty much on his way out. He had been a, you know with the Bucks for almost a decade at that time. And his his chief role that that I remember was that he was sort of the what we call the bean counter back then, or, or what, what you would say was a cap guy, but there was no salary cap guy. He was a shrewd negotiator. He was the um, you know the guy that would beat up the agents and try to get the best deal for the for the team. And back then they didn't have really free agency. Uh, until the very end when it was plan B free agency when he was there and they didn't have a salary cap. So the Bucks almost annually would make the most money in the league because they would spend the least money in the league. And so you could control the bottom line. Well, Eddie DeBartolo was winning Super Bowl titles and spending, you know, 38 and $40 million on payroll. The Bucks were spending 16 uh, and losing a lot of games, but making the most profit. So um, that was primarily Phil's job, but he did get to be a general manager, and it, was, it turned out to be a disaster, not necessarily because of him, um, although they didn't have the best of drafts. But that was the year in 1991 when uh, Richard Williamson, uh, who was the interim coach the last few games of 1990 season after they fired Ray Perkins, uh, took over, and um, they named him head coach. They were flirting with Bill Parcells even back then. Couldn't land him, so they gave it to Richard Williamson, and I'll tell you, everything happened that year. They you know, they traded for Chris Chandler the year before, even though they had Vinny Testaverde. Those two guys got into a fight in the locker room. Yeah, Dexter Manley came in here. Uh, he got suspended again and had to go away. 
one I remember one day the players decided it was so bad, the game was so bad, and it was such a lost season that they walked out of the film session and and Richard Williams was just standing there going, what are you guys doing? And they just walked out. We're not watching this lousy tape. We know we sucked. And they, they left. Um, so you knew Richard had lost the team at that point. Um, but there's a lot of crazy things. And, yeah, Phil was sort of in the middle of it there at the end. And, and uh, I remember his first game, it was a preseason game in Cleveland, and he had just been named general manager. And so many people uh, came up to him and were truly uh, you know, kind of heartfelt, you know, hey, congratulations after all these years, you're general manager. And he was so proud. Uh, and then 3-13 and 13 happened. And then he was let go after that when Sam Weich was hired and Sam took over the, the personnel decisions as well as the head coaching. And so he went down to South Florida. His, his uh, daughter, Christy Kruger, is a longtime, uh, pretty famous news anchor down there in in south florida miami at one of the stations and um i've actually met her and and her husband which is uh phil's son-in-law that made me aware of his death but um kind of sad uh phil kruger he was 90 years old though had had an unbelievable life and uh, a lot of children and grandchildren and and um you know so rest in peace to him also uh what happened a little bit that was interesting i thought you know sunday's race at talladega got got washed out with uh, inclement weather and as we were wrapping up the podcast um, last night, last evening for Monday's podcast, um, the story broke that uh, a noose had been found, I guess, around the 43 car garage, which is Bubba Wallace's, the, mm-hmm. the only African-American driver on the, uh, on the uh, circuit right now. And um, I, don't th- I don't even know that Bubba had seen it necessarily or was the one that discovered it. Um, but it was horrible. It was horrific, and uh, there was a big response, of course, from NASCAR, as you would expect, um, and others that uh, were just repulsed by this. And, of course, you know they've decided to ban uh, the Confederate flag that you see at racetracks, uh, inside the racetracks. Of course, now they're all outside the racetracks in great numbers. But um, And it was really cool. On Monday, before they, they started this race that had been uh, postponed because of weather, all the crews and all the drivers sort of pushed the 43 car out in front of them. It was a really cool symbolic thing. And then, and then you know, Bubba Wallace took a selfie with all of them in the background. And even Richard Petty, who had not been to a race in years, mm-hmm. I think he's 80-something years old, he came out. Yeah, he's the owner Bubba of that car. A hug. Owner of the 43, mm-hmm. the famous 43 car, right? So that was just, it was kind of a cool, it was, it was, a, it was kind of a cool moment. It really was. No, it was well done by NASCAR and, and all the teams and that for that despicable act that happened on Sunday night. So, yeah, um, very well done. Very, very the, the right the right tone and, and way to do it too. I think. Yeah, just I mean, just surrounding him and the support that he got, and then uh, he he ran a I, I, he ran he he drove a really good race. <laughs> Unfortunately, he ran out of gas. <laughs> this this is the thing that kills me about about watching those races is that somebody's going to win because they figured out the fuel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's really what it comes down to. Ryan Blaney won and he did figure out the fuel, but only by a little bit. Like uh, they had a cut, they had enough laps under caution, you know, after he had stopped and tapped off his tank and all that. And, um, he won by a photo finish really. Um, but, uh, yeah, but Bubba Wallace, uh, ran, ran, uh, drove a terrific race and, and there were a lot of, uh, of fans that they had, I think 5,000, they allowed 5,000 fans to come into, uh, Talladega to watch it, and um, it was just cool. It was it was a neat event. Afterwards, uh, you know, he was he was pretty pretty pumped up about the day. Um, he did finish in the top fifteen again. So, you know, 
look, it, it was a, a good response to just a horrific act, and hopefully they they're able to um, to determine you know who put that in there. And 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 I would think that it's very restricted as to who can go near those garages, particularly when you have no fans right now. Yeah, I know there was no um, fan. There were some fans in the stands, but there was no no right. fans were given access to the infield at all. So. No pits, nothing. Yep. Yeah. So I would I would hope they'd be able to find that. But anyway. So that went down. Okay, let's let's talk about baseball. And Steve, you you were on top of this way more than I am. I, I just know that uh, you know that finally we thought it was going to happen Sunday, but finally the Major League Baseball Players Association did uh, have a vote of their thirty player representatives and, and eight executive board members on what was baseball's latest proposal that included things um, like an expanded playoff, like mm-hmm. the designated hitter for twenty twenty one. Um, various other promises that, that, you know, was financially looked enriching, um, you know, in exchange for, uh, you know, playing under the terms of this agreement and, and whatever number of games baseball had settled on, which was 60, I believe, at that time. At any rate, they rejected that. And, and you've talked about this before, but there will be lawyers. There's going to be a lawsuit uh, because uh, they thought they had an agreement back in March. Um, and then, I think the players feel like they changed it on them because uh, these games will be played most likely without fans. And so what we're left with now is, and they've said this before, tell us when and where. Okay, they're going to find out when and where tomorrow. And so by 5 p.m. or today, I'm sorry, by 5 p.m. today, um, they're going to be asked to determine whether they can report to camp in seven days, which would be July 1st, uh, and then whether they you know, are okay with all the operating uh, protocols that uh, they have discussed. So that may take some time, but they'd like to know by 5 p.m. today. I don't know. Are we going to have baseball and then a lawsuit? Are we going to have lawsuits and then maybe not baseball? Like, where is this headed? Where well, do you think this we're going to have baseball and we're going to okay. have lawsuits. Okay. So what happened today is the players rejected a deal that was for 60 games, mm-hmm. included a universal designated hitter for two years, guaranteed right. $25 million in playoff pools for this year, Okay. Uh, Thirty-three million dollars in forgiven salary advances that would increase the take-home pay of most of the major leaguers. Right. Uh, overall, earn- this is according to baseball. Overall earnings of players of one hundred and four percent of their prorated salary, mm. and uh, they agreed to re- uh, MOB is removing the expanded postseason in twenty twenty one as part of this, which is addressing players' concerns. All that's off the table now for the same sixty game schedule that baseball is going to mandate now, which means the players gave up a lot to play the same schedule, except they did not give up the right to file a grievance, which they're hoping to seek a billion dollars worth of damages. So Mm -hmm. the forgiveness of $170 million of salary and the playoff pool and all that is for the chump change Mm -hmm. for the billion dollars that they're hoping to get in damages for through bad negotiation or you know bad, bad faith, faith negotiating yeah. is how it's right. actually phrased. So and and baseball has accused them of exactly the same thing, and mm-hmm. that that is not uncommon in labor disputes um, where both sides will say that it wasn't good faith negotiations, and so a judge will have to decide this. I'm wondering that like in the interim, will the players respect whatever the commissioner says that the season is going to be, the number of games, and when it starts? assuming you can get people back from whatever countries they're in and they can actually report to camp in a week, um, you know, notwithstanding those hurdles, do we think the players truly want to play? Are they going to play and the, the lawyers decided in court or are they going to be, you know, certain guys decide, nah, nah, we're not reporting. We got to settle this other thing first. 
I mean, I just don't know if this is going to drag on and on or if we're truly at the point now. I mean, we're getting at the point where the calendar is not going to work if they don't Mm -hmm. come in and start playing. I'm no lawyer. Right. But this deal now is what they agreed to on March 26th. Right. So they have to. Commissioner gets to set the schedule. Yep. Barring health issues are and that's the, the one holdup that could slow this down or cause problems the is the protocols if the players are have a problem with some of the protocols that were released a week or two whatever it was ago because things have changed yeah. right now like i said i'm not a lawyer but yeah. if this is the deal you created march 26th and you don't show up mm-hmm. then i think your argument of bad faith negotiating on the on the owner's part is kind of out the window now, there may be right. certain you, players that don't show up, and there are some exceptions, yeah. especially if you may be in a, a high-risk health issue. Um, right. and, there, and there are others. I mean, I think baseball has said you can opt out and not play. But if, if the players just don't report, the players union says we're not reporting, barring that the, the, the protocols is agreed to, then I think you lose your bad faith negotiating argument. Because I would think. this is the deal you got on March 26th. They just... Either the, the players just thought they were getting more or baseball purposely stalled all this time to get here so that they could play a 60-game schedule instead of an 80-game schedule or, or something close to yeah. that. Yeah, and what their argument is is that they had agreed to to play as many games that was feasible. You know, mm-hmm. um, Now, the players would like to play through October. Baseball wants to wrap it up by September so they can get to the postseason. Right. And, and there's two fears. Either one, they don't want to play that many games so they don't have to pay as much salary out. Or two, you're also afraid of a second wave coming in the fall, which we've been warned about. So if you want to make sure you get your postseason in, you don't really want your postseason going into November and maybe later if that second wave is going to come. Well, Jeff Passan uh, has uh, said that based on some of the conversations he's had with a number of players, he would would expect them to, uh, to agree. I guess uh, to these sixty games or whatever the commissioner um, enacts. And well, they, they really don't have. They don't they have. really have a. They can't not agree to the sixty games. I mean, that's the agreement they had March twenty sixth. The commissioner gets right. to set the schedule. They can disagree with the protocols, but mm-hmm. you better have a pretty reasonable disagreement if you're going to stop it over that. Because if you're trying right. to sue for a billion dollars of bad faith negotiating, you're you're. Exceptions to the protocols can't be, you know, something that's easily remedied or, you know, kind of you're reaching for it. You know, you'd have to have legit problems with the protocols. And I believe that what I saw was these teams will only uh, will only be practicing or or sort of together in their home facilities. In other words, they're Mm -hmm. not going to their spring training homes. It'll be Tropicana Field, for example. For exactly, yeah. Now, the Yankees were going to do spring training 2.0 in Tampa. Mm-hmm. But with the outbreaks here now, they've actually decided to go to New York for spring training 2.0. Safer, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I think some teams uh, – the, the plan is for teams to do it in their home stadiums. But if there's a health reason or if, if they think it's better to go to their spring training home or somewhere else, I think baseball will allow them to do that. They'll work but, with them, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's all based on, you know, how can we make it as safe as possible for the players and, and all the, the people in the organization that are associated with it and such. And just a reminder, the Phillies on Friday, they announced they had five players down here in Clearwater that tested positive for COVID. So uh, there might be good reason to, to try to 
mm-hmm. minimize the number of teams down here. You know, it's ironic that, you know, there was a time when they were talking about playing their seasons in Arizona and Florida exclusively. And now those two states have high incidences of, um, of COVID reported. Um, and so, you know, maybe, maybe that plan was, was best left on the table as they did. So now we'll see. I mean, I, look, we all want baseball. We need something to come back, and this is the thing. I was reading Albert Beer's column in the Monday Morning Quarterback and Sports Illustrator at SI.com, and, um, and then Adam Schefter, according to my sources reported as well, came in and said that, you know, the league has established, first of all, they've established, like, different tiers within the building, tier one, tier two, tier three, where players can go, where coaches are allowed to go, and other front office personnel can or cannot go. So they're going to try as much separation as they can within those buildings. And we know there's been incidences of, of COVID uh, with the Bucks, both in coaching and players. Um, you know, the other thing was that he reported there were five owners um, that have suggested rather strongly that the NFL slow roll this thing, that they push back the season, that they wait and see how the NBA works this out, what they learn from the NHL, what they learn from Major League Baseball, and not be so quick to start in September and say, look, um, and they have the levers they can pull in the schedule where they begin in October instead. Maybe they preserve some preseason games, which is revenue uh, uh, as well. Um, and, and so, you know, we'll, we'll see if that picks up steam kind of based on what, what happens with these other leagues. I mean, we need to see a team sport come back first um, there are state uh, new protocols going out, like in Hillsborough County was voted on that you must wear a mask mm-hmm. now, uh, starting, I think, Friday at 5 p.m. Wednesday at 5. Wednesday at 5. And St. Okay. Pete uh, passed one tonight, too. Yeah, and Miami-Dade, um, Miami, the city of Miami did as well. So that that is also, uh, you know, something that will hopefully uh, help, you know, limit the spread of this virus and get these numbers down. Um, but all of this is sort of, you know, it's a little like the Wild West. I mean, we're, we're learning in real time how to live with this virus and, and can sports even be played um, outside of, say, golf and NASCAR racing, which is going on right now. So, uh, well, if, you know, this holds, the, if this holds, baseball will be the first sport back of the four team sports. Yes, they uh, will. They'll be back and, the weekend of July 24th 20, through 26th. Mm-hmm. The NHL right. NBA would get started the next weekend, most likely, mm-hmm. assuming no training, changes anywhere else. Training camp for the NFL is somewhere anywhere between the 21st and the 28th, right. I think, of July. Right, but they won't play games till early August with preseason. Not until August. That's regular right. season, of course, till September. Right. And the difference with the, the NFL um, than, say, uh, at least the NBA and the NHL, is they're not going to have those guys locked down. I mean, they're mm-hmm. going to be, you know, going home and and exposed to the general population until they come to the facility and they're going to be they're going to be tested quite frequently in order to make sure that there's there's nobody that's asymptomatic or or what have you so um there's a lot to be learned from the nfl we we said for for weeks and weeks that you know the one thing the nfl has is, is it has time on its side but now that time is starting to evaporate we're only three weeks away from when they wanted quarterbacks in the building or four weeks away from when players may come back and um, you know, there, there just won't be a lot of sports being played even when that occurs. So they're going to have to to learn and wait. And I think that's why, you know, Albert Breer reported that there's a number of owners that would like to even push that back. And I, and I would not be surprised um, at, at minimum if they don't slow roll this thing and, you know, not be as hasty as to try to start 
preseason games in August, um, if they have them at all. And there's been talk about reducing the number of those or perhaps not playing them at all. So we're learning a lot. Baseball will mm-hmm. will take the lead. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll have some sports here before long uh, that we can we can follow and cover and, and, and be able to talk about on this podcast as opposed to just negotiations and things. But we're incrementally we're, we're starting to uh, to move the ball forward, so to speak. So Meanwhile, the NHL is allowing Phase 2 groups to be expanded to 12 players on the ice now starting today that's good. instead of mm-hmm. just six. And that's despite some three Lightning players being diagnosed with COVID-19, uh, apparently Austin Matthews of the Maple Leafs and some other players. Uh, mm-hmm. But they're now expanding the on-ice uh, groups to 12 instead of six, so starting tomorrow. Now, did they, did they not close Amelie Arena as a result of that, or was that temporary? I thought I saw maybe where uh, I believe the Lightning closed down. Amelie Arena. I don't think the NHL did, but the Lightning okay. The Lightning did. They immediately sent everyone home after they got uh, the diagnosis that three players and a couple guys in hockey so they did. presumably would have to um, either find a new place or reopen that. Again. Or, yeah, I mean, I, they, I'm not sure if they'll do it there. They may do it at the practice rink. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the Lightning may not be doing it now, but the NHL is. I mean, I think the Lightning have taken a few days off at least. Yeah. Um, not sure when they'll get back, but the rest of the league mm-hmm. can still do things. So, Right, right. Well, it's slowly coming back. Let's, let's hope that, uh, like I said, folks, you're not, you know, we talked about if you love sports, maybe the quickest way is that the best thing you can do is wear a mask. Now you're going to have to do so if you live in Hillsborough or Tampa or St. Pete. Um, so, we're hoping that uh, we'll start to see a turn in, in terms of the cases and things. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, uh, today we're going to try something a little bit uh, different. We uh, have a little bit of bonus time. Matt Baker, uh, who we have on this podcast a lot, you know him from covering college football and other sports for the Tampa Bay Times, as well as NASCAR and racing and things like that. He had a chance uh, recently, um, this was sometime I think a week or so ago, to sit down and, and talk with Tashawn Reed of The Athletic. Remember the story where uh, Mike Norvell, in this interview he had with um, with Reed, came out and said, you know, there, there, all the civil unrest and, and you know, the... the um, social injustice uh, protests and things like this. Norvell made mention that he had been in close contact with almost every, every single player. He mentioned talking to, I've talked to every single player and it was sort of an innocuous quote that, that Reed threw in his story. Reed, by the way, has was covering Florida state is now moved on to cover the Las Vegas Raiders. Um, but nonetheless, uh, when Marvin Wilson saw that the defensive tackle, he reacted uh, <laughs> vociferously uh, and said, hey, that, that's not the case. He has not called every single player. Uh, and he kind of called him out. And then Norvell went back and said, yeah, you know what? Um, he's right. Technically, I haven't talked to everybody. And there was some some coming meeting of the minds about uh, about the words that uh, Norvell had used. But it's it kind of spurred a larger discussion uh, that Matt Baker had uh, with Tashan, who is who is black, and, and about, you know, about – 
sort of coaching and college athletics and, the, and, and where race figures into all of that. Um, there's a good discussion in this podcast uh, and in, in this interview uh, about uh, the treatment of black coaches in college football versus white coaches in college for football, uh, particularly uh, at Florida State, you know, um, and, and other places around the country. So it, it's a really well done uh, conversation, and it's one that, that everybody needs to, we're all having as a nation about race. Uh, and I thought Matt and Deshaun did a really nice job with this. So we want to give you guys an opportunity. Here's Matt Baker of the Tampa Bay Times and his discussion with the athletics to Sean Reed. We're going to talk a little bit about race and Florida State. Race obviously has been a major you know, conversation point across the country for the last couple of weeks. In Florida State, there's a couple little tentacles there that I think kind of factor into the, the larger conversation that we're having. So let's bring sports into this and, and view some of the stuff that's happened at Florida State you know, the last what eight, nine months uh, through the prism of race and, and just have, have an honest kind of straightforward uh, grown-up conversation. Sean, I wanted to bring you on because you were, uh, I guess, at the center of the Marvin Wilson uh, player threaten boycott, whatever that was, uh, a little bit ago. Um, take us through just kind of from your perspective what happened with all that from when you started talking with uh, Mike Marvell. Yeah, I mean, that whole situation was completely unintentional. Uh, <laughs> I even though I've, I've trans- yeah, I've, I've, I've transitioned to cover covering the Raiders for the Athletic. Um, I covered Florida State for the past two seasons, uh, the entirety of the Willie Taggart era, I suppose. Uh, but I was also there for when Mike Morvell was hired uh, and through the brief spring practice that they had. And so every year at The Athletic, we do a series called State of the Program. It's essentially just a big season preview. Um, and for that, you know, we, we like to interview the head coach and coordinators if possible. Um, I got Mark, Mike Morvell. You know, just to begin the interview, I was talking to him about what he's been doing to not only keep in touch with players, but get to know his players considering that he just got there. Like he doesn't really, they don't know him and he doesn't really know them either. And he explains to me that, excuse me, every Sunday he sends them all the video. um, And then he also communicates with all of them, you know, just kind of checking in. And he's done that pretty much throughout the pandemic. Um, And he also mentioned that he, uh, at the end of the semester, he held zoom meetings, 10 to 15 minutes with every player Kind of like the the standard end of semester meetings that you would have going over grades and concerns. Exit interview and, type stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so I had already had that as like that had been established. And so when I asked him about George Floyd, and he said that he communicated with every player about it, I was like, all right, that, that fits. So I, I, the reason why I put it out was was at that point, not many college football coaches in, at, at, at all in general, no matter what the level is, had really spoken about it. And I was like. Not only has he spoken about it, but he's spoken to every player individually about it. I'm going to put this out. It's commendable. And the plan was to take out, uh, you know, the offseason part of what I asked him about, just how he's, as a new coach and a new coaching staff, they've stayed in touch with the players and ending on a George Floyd note in a separate story. And then the the next week has a state of the program piece, which came out today. And I just put the quote out. It got like a little bit of buzz. It wasn't anything crazy. Um, And then the next night, I was watching a documentary or something and I just checked my phone and it's like going crazy. And I'm like, what the <laughs> is going on? Like I, I see Marvin Wilson, text about Marvin Wilson, Mike Norvell lying. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And so I hop on Twitter. At this point, the tweet's already blown up. Yep. Uh, and at first glance, I thought that Marvin was saying that like my quote was like not real. But then I read it and I was like, oh, he's saying like Norvell is lying. And it was late East, 
on Eastern time here it was about midnight or so when I saw it. Um, so I reached out to a couple of people, but I knew, I mean, it was 3 a.m. over there, probably asleep. Uh, and so I just went to sleep and I was like, all right, I guess it'll probably be resolved in the morning. Like the boycott, I was like, it seems extreme. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. So, so let's, let's pause right there. Yeah. What's your reaction when you see something about something that you tweeted that you thought mm-hmm. was completely innocuous and suddenly right. there's a chance there's a player led boycott led by an all-America yeah. caliber potential first-round pick. Yeah, I, the first thing I did, actually, even though I knew that he said it because I you know, transcribed the interview, yeah. um, but I went back and listened to it. I was just like, because I felt bad. I was like, damn, did I? Did I maybe, did I did I misquote him? And so yeah, I listened to it again. Up, yeah. And I was like, no. Like he said it. I listened to it like three or four times. So I was like, oh, okay. Well, that's, that's on him, I guess. I guess if Marvin Wilson is saying, like Marvin Wilson in, in the years that I've, a couple years that I was there, he's, he's never lied. He's always been straightforward. He's somebody that no matter what's going on in the program, he's going to tell you how it is. And so I had no reason to doubt him saying that, you know, what Norvell said wasn't true. Mm-hmm. And so that wasn't what I was trying to confirm in there. What I was trying to confirm is, all right, is this boycott actually happening? And like, I couldn't. So in the morning, I was going to follow up with people, you know, once it was daytime. Uh, but instead, I, I woke up to as many unread texts and calls and social media posts as I've ever seen in my life. You're on ESPN or talking about this. I'm like, why are they doing that? And I, I checked it and I saw how big it had gotten um, and found out that there was a team meeting, you know, basically mm-hmm. going on when I woke up. Uh, and so I quickly, you know, hopped on the phone with a couple of our, our writers here, Andy Staples and, and Bruce Feldman, and we kind of worked through it and started to put together some things. But um yeah, it was, it was just crazy to see how it all unfolded. I mean, obviously, shortly after that, Marvin Wilson put out a video basically explaining that they reconciled, and then Mike Norville put out his, his public apology. Uh, but before that, I mean, I was catching a lot of heat just because uh, I have a certain kind of relationship with the Florida State fan base, and they just... Uh, I don't know what that's like. I, was, I, I yeah. have no idea, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. I, I, I'm sure you cannot relate at all. Nope. But uh, a lot of people call me a liar and say, release the audio if you said it, and I wasn't going to do that because uh, it had been one thing if Florida State or Mike Norvella came out and said, I didn't say that. At that point, okay, I'll release the audio. But unless they're trying to discredit me or they're trying to make me look bad, there's no reason for me to pile on top of them, especially since that wasn't my intent. Like, I had no negative intent with putting this quote out. And so, like I said, Mike Norvella apologized. So at that point, I'm like, he acknowledged he said it. There's obviously no need for me to put out the audio. And then all of a sudden, all these apologies start to come in. Um, For most of them, I mean, some of them were still like, yeah. We'll cover the Raiders, leave us alone. Um, sure. But it, it was kind of a quick 24-hour news cycle story. Um, it could have gotten much worse, but I'm actually glad that it didn't. So you touched on Marvin Wilson's uh, the, the Instagram video he posted. What was your reaction when when you saw that? I mean, it was a pretty powerful video, mm-hmm. I thought, about, um, again, about this larger conversation that everybody's having about race in America and some of this, you know, FSU, uh, according to Marvin's taking three kind of, tangible steps that hey there are some things that we can help fix we're going to help fix them by doing you know uh everybody's registering to vote doing more to try and get uh, black uh black students on campus and help the the the, um disadvantaged youth in tallahassee and so three kind of tangible steps that they're trying to take to to fix this problem Mm -hmm. i thought it was pretty brave of him i mean as a college athlete he he, even though he's a star player he doesn't have much power Mm -hmm. you know he's he's at the whim of the coaching staff pretty much in the, in the program. And so for him to take a stand as like he did and then follow up on that and, and actually back it with some sort of formal plan for action, you know, that's commendable. I mean, you, you have to, especially, I mean, he's not a kid or anything like that, but it's mature for somebody that's 22, 23 years old. And so 
you know, I hope that, you know, those things happen. I hope that the program actually supports him and the rest of the players in it. And I hope it's something that's not temporary. I hope it's something that they don't just do for this year. That has to be something that for it to actually create effective change, you have to replicate that and actually instill that into your culture for however long Norville's tenure lasts. And not just with the football program, but with Florida State in general, which I think was what Marvin was addressing there. He wants the school as a whole to change. Right. Yeah. I, I talked with a, a booster afterward. I mean, I know there's going to be some, some conversations and I know, I know at least one booster is like, Hey, sign me up. I want to help with this too. Um, Cause they've kind of found Marvin's uh, testimony and, and his, uh, his words to be that powerful. Um, obviously it was a, like you said, a crazy weird 24 hour news cycle thing. And then okay, every, everybody kind of kissed and made up and hugged and everything's good. Given the circumstances, do you think FSU handled that? And, and I guess at the end of the day, did that go about as well as it could have? Yeah, I, I don't think there's they couldn't have handled it any better. I mean, that was that went as that went much more smooth than I ex- expected it to. Um, you know, I mean, they didn't they met immediately. They didn't try to avoid it or kind of just handle it through text messages and calls. I mean, obviously the timing worked out to where. They were already returning to campus for a voluntary workout, so they could have that in-person meeting. You know, if this happened a month ago, I don't know how this plays out. But just since it kind of worked out that way, he could address it in person directly, take accountability for it. And, you know, having Marvin Wilson, I mean, the key was Marvin Wilson. Because after that apology, he could have still been pissed off and said, you know, I don't accept it. I'm still boycotting. But he relented. He accepted the apology and said that they could move forward. And so... That was that went very smoothly, and then Mike Novell put out a very carefully worded statement. He owned up to it publicly. He apologized. Um, he said, yeah, I'm he apologized." Sorry. I, I thought that was yeah. pretty key. I don't know. No, not every coach would would admit wrongdoing and say that because coaches are, you know, they mm-hmm. have egos. They're the, the, the face of the program. They're and they are they're everything in college football. Yeah. So I thought for him to say flat out, "I'm sorry," was was a pretty big step. And when I read that, I was kind of like, "Okay." He, he yeah. made up to it. He owned up to it. And something that you see a lot of times when something like this happens is, uh, I'm sorry if I offended anybody. That's the key line. No, he just said, I'm sorry. Like, I was wrong. Marvin's right. You don't see that, really. And so he owned it completely, and I give him credit for that. Yeah. Um, so let's kind of transition from the, the new coach to the old coach and, and, and Willie Taggart. Um, I think there's an important conversation here that I haven't really addressed. You, you did at the Athletic, and we'll get to that in a second. I mean, one of the conversations actually going on is about systemic racism. And so let's talk about Willie Taggart getting fired at FSU after 21 games and the role that race played in it. Um, you, you wrote about that at the time on The Athletic. You, you made it quite clear that race, he did not get fired after less than two seasons because he was, he was black. But there is a component there. There's a racial lens that we, we, sh- we as a society and, and we as, as writers here can, can view it through. So I'm going to read uh, this is from your story on The Athletic. Um, you had a uh, Taggart signee's parent um, say, uh, quote, I think they jumped the gun prematurely because the simple fact is they will hire a white coach and give him the adequate time to bring his recruits into the system. Then it would be that Taggart left the program a mess. Da-da-da. Uh, there are fans that didn't support this coach because he's a black man. Mark my words, when they hire one of theirs, watch how the tables turn. I also talked to a, uh, a booster who said, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to argue with the eye test after the Miami uh, debacle. Mm-hmm. Debacle's my, my word. Um, 
but quote, anytime you have a group of all white men in a room making decisions on the future of a minor minority coach, it's never a good look. So I'm gonna start with a broad question here. How should the fact that, you know, Willie is an African-American man at a high profile program who did not even get two full years, how should his race affect or um, how, how should we, we view that, that part of his identity into the context of, again, the nine and 12 season or the nine and 12 record and his quick departure? Yeah, I think, as you said, you know, obviously Willis Tiger didn't get, didn't get fired because he was black. He got fired because they weren't winning enough games. And that's any time anybody gets fired, unless there's some kind of scandal, that's right. the case. But I think what people have to be cognizant of is historically black coaches have been given a shorter leash. There's, this is not something you can argue. And I think at the time he was fired, uh, I mean, there were several second-year coaches that had either the same record or worse record. I mean, Scott Frost, at the time Willie Tiger was fired, Scott Frost was 8-13, and 13, Willie Tiger was 9-12. and 12. Neither one of those were great records. But Scott Frost, at the end of the season, got a two-year extension, and Willie Tiger got, didn't even get to finish the season. What's the difference? You know, Nebraska's won more national championships than Florida State. I know they haven't had as high a level of successes recently, but they're one of the greatest college football programs of all time. So they have a high standard as well, and they rewarded their guy. And Tiger got fired halfway through the season. What's the difference there, you know? It really wasn't much difference in terms of record, how good they were playing. They both sucked, basically. But one was fired and one, one got an extension. And so it's small, small comparisons like that where you wonder what, what, what's different here, you know? And, and I think there's several instances of that throughout history. Willie Tiger isn't the first one. He's the most expensive one. I think that's also the other part of it is the amount of money they had to spend to get rid of him. Just makes you wonder, I mean, is there something that's going on here? And so... It may not have been – I'm not even saying it's, it was – obviously it wasn't – the majority of the decision wasn't based off of that, but I think it did play a factor. And I think somebody would be disingenuous to just ignore that it may have played a factor. I, I think you're exactly right. I think you have to be disingenuous to ignore that uh, race played a role in his dismissal because race played a role in him getting hired. Um, right. He did not get hired because he, he's a minority. I, I, FSU wasn't going to do that. Um, but the fact is, at the time, they had an African-American AD, Stan Wilcox, an African-American uh, head uh, men's basketball coach, Leonard Hamilton. And I think, I mean, I know they took some pride in having, you know, all three, three most powerful men in the athletic department uh, were, were all black. Um, that's something that was important to them. I think right. they realized that there could be a, I don't want to say an advantage necessarily, but the fact that all three could be, three people in power would be black would be a good thing. I think there's certainly a, a fact that maybe it could help with recruiting and, and what sort of thing. And, and not even just beyond the X's nose, uh, an African-American guy relating to a roster that is predominantly African-American. So they, they right. thought there were some good things that could come from this. And that's one of the reasons, not the reason, one of the reasons that he was an attractive candidate. So you have to look at the exit of it and maybe think the same thing. Um, right. So I want to go back to the kind of the Scott Frost analogy and push back on that just a tiny bit. Um, after the season, at, at the time, you know, Willie was – it's a very short list of coaches who didn't make it through year two or got fired right. thereafter. Um, Chad Morris at Arkansas got fired it right. was a week after Willie did. Mm -hmm. um, Joe Moore had a Mississippi state uh, got fired after the bowl game uh, after mm -hmm. only two seasons as well. Does that change at all? Um, what you were saying, or is that just two kind of anomalies or is that just mm -hmm. the way college sports is right now in general? Yeah, I think with, with, with Chad Morris specific, I mean, he was, significantly worse than Willie Tiger. Which, was, uh, <laughs> I thought it was going to work out and I yeah. was way wrong. Yeah. And so, I mean, with that one, I mean, you know, he, 
Jojo Moorhead was, I think, is the one where it's. I think there was something else going on within the athletic department there. Some kind of they just didn't want him anymore, regardless of whether he was white or black or whatever he was. They just didn't want him. They wanted somebody else, and so you do have instances of that as well. Um, but two things can be true at the same time. You know, I mean, you can have a coach, white coach, get fired in two seasons as well, but it doesn't happen as often for them. You have to think about how many white coaches there are. Out of 130 FBS programs that's going into the season, there's only 14 black coaches. And so a white coach getting fired after two seasons isn't a big deal. There's hundreds, you know, literally probably over 100 white coaches. We only have, like yeah, yeah. You only, you only have 14 black coaches. If one of them at a major program like Florida State gets fired in 1.5 seasons, that's a big deal because not only does it affect Taggart, when, when, when a black coach fails, Charlie Strong saw that at Texas at a big university like that. It hurts the re- everybody else to come. Because the university said, we tried it. It didn't work out. We're not doing that anymore. It, it, it I'm makes sorry. Other... Do, you mean, do you mean that hurts future African-American candidates? That yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. It makes it more difficult for them to land those kind of high-profile jobs. Because other major programs, they, they, they'll look to that and see, hey, it didn't work at Texas. It didn't work at Florida State. Why, why would we do that? You know? And so it, it matters more when it happens to a Willie Taggart than when it happens to a Chad Morris or Jordan Moorhead. Sure. I got gotcha. you. Um, I, I think I'm stealing this from from our friend friend of the times, uh, Richard Johnson, formerly at SB Nation and Banner Society. Now is a free agent. Somebody ought to hire him because he's a great guy and a great writer. Um, but he and I have talked about this, and again, I'm parroting Richard here. But I think how Willie failed is important too. Um, if I were to come up with a stereotype of a black football coach, uh, especially one who fails, it would be a guy who's um, his program was undisciplined, uh, didn't work well uh, on game day, um, mm-hmm. maybe inexperienced and that sort of thing. And when you look at what happened at Florida State, they failed on game day because of game preparation. Well, that's why they got their tails kicked so many times in the second half. Think about the boys you let down, the debacle against ULM, even though they won, some of those type of things. And then you look at all the penalties. I can't, I mean, you and I both know how many times we've heard from fans and message boards and emails and, set and what have you, how undisciplined they look where they're not lining up correctly. And right. I don't know that I'd ever covered a game or a program that couldn't line up correctly on a punt. And FSU did it a couple of times. <laughs> so right. I think how he failed is important because if I were to come up with a stereotype of, of a black coach who fails, it would look like Will. Mm. The other side of it is those are also some of the hallmarks of, an, of just a young coach um, where right. maybe they'll know what they don't know and get the smarter game day guys around them. Or they'll learn more of the X's and O's as they develop and figure out how to be a better disciplinarian. Um, maybe not be so buddy-buddy and, and be more you know, hold more accountability, that sort of thing. So I think how he failed is an important part of this component too. Right. And I also think that's something that you could argue is, is typical with some black coaches where it seems like they're unprepared or they're not ready for it when they get the opportunity and I think that stemmed from the lack of a pipeline and the lack of, lack of proper development for black assistant coaches. Black assistant coaches aren't really placed in those positions where they learn how to run a program. They're not given, really given those associate head coach and assistant head coach roles to where they learn how to navigate all of that. You know, they may just be a high profile coordinator or maybe they were a head coach at a lower level of school and then they catch a break. They haven't really been mentored and, and nurtured and 
develop the way that they need to be in order to know what they're doing when they get to that point at a big program like a, a Florida State or Texas where there's so many eyes on you. And so they get there and they're overwhelmed. And a lot of times, as a black coach, obviously at Florida State, isn't that's not a bad job. That's a job that you take no matter what. But with some of these jobs that black coaches take, it's like it's a bad program. They've been bad for a long time. And well, we have Western Kentucky. Right. right. Like Western and Kentucky so, is a train wreck. Right. And a lot and sometimes it works out. It worked out for them there, but a lot of times it doesn't. And then they get fired and they never get another chance. That's the thing. Black coaches get fired, they don't really get second chances. Like obviously Willie did, but he's rare in that. A white coach, most of the time, if he gets fired, eh, I'll go be a coordinator. <laughs> You'll make a million dollars a year or, or find my way to be back a, a head coach again one day. Uh you know what I mean? LSU at, at Orgeron. I mean, I don't know if a black coach could have such a disastrous first head coaching job and then get a job like LSU. I don't know if that's happened, you know? Well, yeah, and, and he got it because he was, uh, you know, the interim coach at LSU as, as a, uh, an assistant was able to, you know, prove himself. Right. And if Tom Herman said, I prefer LSU over Texas, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Right. Tom Herman would be at LSU. So, yeah, you definitely touched on something there, just on the, the lack of a pipeline. Um, certainly, this, this is the same thing in the NFL where there aren't a lot of black head coaches because there's not enough black assistants and particularly black coordinators. I think we definitely see that in college and shoot. I think to some level we see that in high schools. Um, when I think about kind of the, the highest paid um, coaches that I've covered in my time in, in Texas and Oklahoma, not so much in Florida, just because everybody's kind of on the same pay scale in the County. So it's a little different, but you look at the, the districts in Texas and Oklahoma where some of them pay their coaches six figures, 110, mm-hmm. 120, $130,000. Those are the primo jobs with the best facilities, typically the best players, that sort of thing. And almost all of them are white. Um, there are black coaches, but most of the black coaches are in, uh, again, this is, I don't have data here. This is from my three years covering high school football in those states. Um, it's your inner city uh, team. Some of them are quite good, um, mm-hmm. but some of them are not. And the money is not there. And when you think about, I think that's part of this larger thing where uh, for whatever reason, the black coaches are getting more of the inner city jobs, whereas you're Allen, uh, Texas, and Euless Trinity, and South Lake Carroll, mm-hmm. and Jinx and Union, your big national powers that pay their coaches a ton of money, almost all those type of coaches are white. Right. And I think, I mean, obviously, it starts somewhere. You know, the problem in the NFL starts in college. The problem in college starts in high school. You know, that's yeah. it, just how, the nature of it. Um, I think with the high school level, we kind of get more into the wider issue with race and, and the socioeconomic elements that come with race in our country, you know, just the way that black communities are sort of still segregated in a lot of cities and lower income. And they don't have, like you said, they just don't have the money to pay a, a head coach six figures. Like this is not possible. Right. But a lot of those nicer, typically wider communities, they do. But a black coach, he isn't going to come up there. It's not where he grew up. It's not where he's going to start coaching. They, they would never hire or rarely hire a black coach because he wouldn't be able to, really relate or even be there or live there in the first place. And so that, I mean, that that's more so like a bigger, like, you know, decades and hundreds of years worth of how our country has worked, but it does. I mean, it sounds kind of, that may sound dramatic to some, but it matters because as I said, you don't have any, you know, prominent black high school head coaches. They won't become, you know, college assistants. And then one day become, you know, college head coaches and one day become NFL. So it, it matters. That's where it starts, honestly. A- absolutely. I mean, your, Gus Malzahn started in high school. Chad Morris, who we talked about, you know, obviously his failures at Arkansas, but he got head coaching jobs at, at SMU and, and, and Arkansas. 
Um, he was a, a high school head coach of, of renown before he was an assistant at Clemson. So yeah, that, that pipeline starts somewhere and it starts in some degrees in, in the high school ranks. Um, I know you don't have a crystal ball, um, I, but one of the things I've wondered, the, the what ifs in this is what if Willie had gotten another year or mm-hmm. what if FSU knew this pandemic was coming? Because obviously financially, this right. is going to be a mess for Florida State yes. and everybody else <laughs> in the country. We don't right. know as we sit here today on what is this, June 10th, my computer says, we don't know to what degree the finances at FSU and everyone else will be messed up from this, but it's not going to be good. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder if FSU knew this was coming and they knew what the, you know, obviously they knew the buyout, 18, 19 million dollars, somewhere in that range. I wonder if they would have done it. Yeah. What I talked to, I mean, I talked to David Coburn earlier this year. I think it was March. Maybe you, I think immediately after uh, Florida State, you know, they were at the AC tournament and it got canceled. Mm-hmm. I think that's when everything kind of went sideways with sports. Um, and he told me, you know, it's going to change the, co- the the landscape of college sports forever as far as this financial aspect goes. And, uh, you know, I think it, it may have, because uh, obviously that's a lot of money anyway, even if there's no pandemic, but especially in a pandemic when they already had issues with ticket sales and revenue and they, they were losing money for, and it sounds crazy for Florida State, but they were. They were already doing that before a pandemic, and now it's going to be even worse. And they expect this year to be—they already expected this year to be rough financially. And now you have a, a national pandemic because it's going to cripple some programs. But I think that they may not have done it because I mean, I, I personally—I mean, this is just my opinion. Like I said, I don't have a crystal ball. I think that Florida State is about like an eight-win team, probably. I think that if Willie Tiger got another year, they would have probably been an eight-win team. I think that I just think that's. I don't think there's much difference this immediate future this year, whether it's Willie Taggart or Mike Norvell. There could be a long-term difference. I think that's what they're banking on, obviously. But the short-term, it would probably be very similar, like maybe a game difference in either direction. Um, And so is a game difference worth $20 million compared to what it would have been if you wait another year and Mike Norvell is still at Memphis and you go get him in, you know? I mean, obviously, it's just hard to project, you know, if Mike Norvell would have got another job. And, you know, there's so many elements with this that were, this is hypothetical. What, what would recruiting you know, have happened? Right. Recruiting, yeah. Right. You just, have, you, you just wonder, you know, what they have done something differently. I think they, they might have. Um, I, I want to shift gears here as we, we kind of wrap this up. Um, there, there's another program in the state that I think could be – I'm curious how you view this, through again, through our, our racial – um, lens that we're using here. Um, I have no idea what to make of Miami done this year. Um, they could be, they could win the coastal because the coastal is stupid and makes no sense. Um, and and the best case scenario for them, De'Ara King works, clicks with Brett Lashley, the new offensive coordinator. They go, Manny Diaz's defense is really good. They win the coastal. Everything's fine. Worst case scenario, the lack of practice time hurts the offensive continuity the new quarterback and the transfers don't work out. Mm-hmm. And given the, the way the schedule starts, they could lose against Temple, they lose against Michigan State. I could see, again, worst case scenario here, Miami and Manny Diaz in a lot of hot water in year two for a lot of the same reasons, bad offensive line, not mm-hmm. the best assistance that happened with, with Willie. Right. Um, Manny is not black. He is, he is, he is Cuban-American. Does the fact that he is Cuban American is that a difference at all with, with Willie and how you view this? I'm curious. Uh, I just think there's not as much. Uh, we don't have as much evidence with uh, non-black people of color running head, head, 
being a head coach of football programs. Um, obviously, we have some Polynesian coaches, some Hispanic coaches. I don't think we have any Asian head coaches. Um, and uh, I, I mean, for I, I did a story earlier this week. Um, Alonzo Carter, he's an assistant at, at San Jose State. He did a call. He's been doing a call with with minority coaches um, every Thursday. And the last call that they had last week, they had it was over 300 coaches. Well, not all of them were black. There were some other minorities in there, Polynesians, Hispanics. Um, and so they're part of this struggle, too. It, it does affect them. We just don't hear about it as much because there's not as many of them. And there haven't been as many of them historically. So there's nothing really to gauge it off of. But I think it's the same premise. I mean, I know it's a little bit different, um, especially being in Miami. I mean, there's, there's such a large Cuban population there that he's not really considered the, mi- the minority where he is. But nationally, he's still a minority. Um, but like, like you said, I, I think it's a lot of the, they have a very like he has a very similar start to what Willie Taggart had. You know, it, it's not looking much better at all. And so you wonder, will they make the same decision? Uh, you know, I think even if, let, let, let's say he gets fired halfway through the season, I would still have the same opinion. I mean, if it's, you know, looking about the same, uh, I just think that's too early for a guy. I mean, especially when you, I know Miami had, had the year where they looked great. And it was like, oh, they're back again for like the 10th time. It was like, <laughs> This program hasn't been good for a long time, you know, and it's not going to get good overnight. You have to give guys time to build, especially in college football. It's not if like you have free agency where you can just go grab. I need a quarterback. Let me sign this. You know, no, 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 to, no. To, to Sean, well, transfer the, portal. Yeah, Miami has owned the transfer portal. Yeah, I mean, but with, it hasn't with, worked out. No, I didn't say it worked <laughs> out. <laughs> no, um, it's been fascinating to watch just the way they they've gotten so many high profile guys. Tate Martell last year, the um, Jalen Phillips from, from UCLA was a five-star top recruit in the country at Bolden, mm-hmm. at DB, all, all that stuff. And, um, you know, KJ Osborne was a good receiver for them. Yeah. But, and, and generally speaking, you're right, hasn't, hasn't worked out. And um, I, I was down in Miami for the Orange Bowl for covering the Gators and talked to a couple of the, the Canes writers I knew down there, just asking them what the heck happened in their debacle of a bowl game against Shreveport. And as we started talking, I was like, oh, my God, this is just like Willie Dagger. Yeah. The offensive line is bad. The coordinator and assistant, I should say assistant coach hires that they made didn't really work out. There's no continuity. The offense is, is a train wreck. Um, the difference, you know, one of the differences I would say is that um, Manny's a first-time head coach. So if you mm-hmm. want to be optimistic, there's things he's going to learn. Uh, there's the stuff that he didn't know that he didn't know. Whereas Willie had been through this show a couple times. But again, I, I don't know what's going to happen with the Canes, but I think it can very, very, it's definitely in play that they could be a train wreck in about the same place through 21 games mm-hmm. that, that Willie was at FSU, which is why I think this could be a, a fascinating thing to see how it plays out down there. And I think the thing, obviously, that got Willie canned was losing to Miami in the way that he did at home. Yep. Uh, I think Miami's hosting Florida yep. State next year. If, if Manny's struggling in his second season and it gets get railroaded by, by Florida State, it's going to be the same situation. You know what I mean? But I, just my perspective on that in general, I, I think with a head coach, coming into a program that's coming off of turmoil and, and not being good. Uh, I think three seasons is my number. Like if after three seasons, you're still where you are beforehand. All right. That's enough, man. You can go. Like you've had a few recruiting classes. You have chan- chances to get rid of maybe guys that you don't think fit or, or causing issues internally. You have your staff together. You have some continuity. You're entrenched third season. If you still aren't good. All right. Let them loose. Do whatever not even two seasons in, I just, it, it just doesn't sit right with me. Sure. And you're definitely not the only person that's, uh, that feels that way. Um, yeah. 
Sishan, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, where can people follow your work? Yeah, just uh, follow me on Twitter at Tashawn Reed. Um, and same thing at The Athletic, uh, Tashawn Reed. I, like I said, I'm covering the Raiders now. I, I just got out to Vegas last week, so I, I'm still getting settled, but I actually started covering the team remotely in April. Uh, and so I, I still have some college football tieovers, if you're interested in that. Uh, I've been writing some Florida State stories, obviously, some unintentional stories. Um, um, Gruden? Gruden? Yeah, he uh, – <laughs> I haven't met that guy yet. They haven't made him available. So I'm, I'm waiting. <laughs> I'm waiting. Uh, That's one thing with this pandemic is access for reporters is so weird. Yeah, seriously. But I think the uh, good people of Tampa Bay are interested in that Gruden fella for a couple of reasons. So. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, he's got this forever long contract, it seems like. So <laughs> have plenty of time to get it figured out. It'll be interesting to see if he does it. Sure. Well, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me on, man. All right, my thanks to Matt and, of course, to Sean Reed for that interesting conversation. Tomorrow we're going to have the lovely, the talented Chris Torello of Spectrum Sports Bay News 9, and he will uh, be aboard with us. And then also maybe, just maybe, the start of a Major League Baseball season, some news on that, so we'll follow those talks closely as well. Keep your fingers crossed, folks. I think we're going to have baseball. I can feel it. I can just feel it. For Steve Ersnick, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great day, everybody. 